It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there, friends, and welcome back to Mask of Sanity. I'm your host, Melanie Peterson, and today we're going to take a bit of a departure from the standard serial killer. This episode is going to cover the case of Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. He was methodical and ruthless, a contract killer who worked for several Italian-American crime families, including the notorious Gambino family, and he claimed to have killed over 200 people during his 30-year stretch. So buckle up, friends, because Kuklinski is vicious. Richard Leonard Kuklinski was born on April 11, 1935, in Jersey City, New Jersey, to Stanley and Anna Kuklinski as the second of four children. His father was a Polish immigrant who worked as a brakeman at the railroad. And like we've seen before in a lot of these cases, Kuklinski's father was violent towards his wife and his children. He beat them often and was an alcoholic. His mother, Anna, who was from Ireland, worked at a meat processing plant and was extremely strict and an ardent Catholic. In this case, however, Kuklinski's mother would also beat him because she believed children should be raised in a strict environment, so there was no escaping for him. Kuklinski's childhood was not without tragedy. When he was five years old, his father killed his older brother Florian by beating him so badly that he died from his injuries. And once Stanley realized he had killed his son, he ordered his wife to call the hospital and tell them that Florian had fallen down the stairs and hit his head, and that's why he passed away. And I can't tell if Anna went along with this because she was afraid of her husband or because she too abused her children or maybe a little bit of both either way i've said it before and i will continue to say it until people get it through their heads stop beating on your children hitting a child does nothing except instill fear they're not going to change their behavior because it's the right choice they're going to change it because they fear you how does it teach a child to act in a certain way for the right reasons i mean please tell me because it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And as we've seen, this kind of abuse, this constant abuse as a child only hinders their development into becoming a healthy and productive member of society. Soon after the death of Florian, Stanley basically, he abandoned his family. He left and Kuklinski was pretty much left to his own devices and forced to care for himself. 
And like I said, unfortunately for Kuklinski, witnessing this abuse and being subjected to it himself in his adolescent years, it really caused him to develop a very short temper as he got older. If someone made him mad or slighted him in a way he felt was unforgivable, he would retaliate and sometimes fatally. Whatever violence he had received, he pushed it back out into the world. It was just developing and developing and like residing inside of him and there was no way that it wasn't going to come out. In 1948, Kuklinski had dropped out of school and by the time he was 13 years old, he had committed his first murder. He was reportedly um, an enemy of Charlie Lane and was an easy target for neighborhood bullies because he was on the smaller side at this point. Lane was, quote, the leader of a small neighborhood gang called the Project Boys that had been bullying him, end quote. The bullying had been going on for years. But finally, one day, Kuklinski snapped and decided it was enough after he had been on the receiving end of a pretty violent beating. So he found a wooden dowel, basically a thick circular length of wood, tracked Charlie down and began to ferociously beat him. Kuklinski was unstoppable. All his frustration, all his anger, all his hate was coming out with every swing of this dowel. And he later denied wanting to kill Lane, but he had hit him so hard and so much that by the time he was finished, Lane didn't wake up. So in an attempt to cover up what he had done, Kuklinski used a hatchet to hack off Lane's fingertips and pulled his teeth out with pliers. He then pushed Lane's body over the edge of a bridge in South Jersey, and unfortunately, Lane's body was never found. And this is just terrifying. What 13-year-old thinks to mutilate a body like this in order to prevent identification? And for such a young age, Kuklinski was already well on his way to becoming a brutal killer. After dumping Lane's body, Kuklinski hunted down the rest of the boys in the gang and beat them with an, an iron rod he had found in a trash can. And thankfully, he didn't go so far as to kill any of these boys, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Years later, quote, he said in the HBO documentary Iceman Confessions of a Mafia Hitman in 1992 that it was the day he killed Charlie Lane that he learned it was better to give than to receive, end quote. By the time he was 16 years old, Kuklinski had a reputation for having an extremely short fuse and made no qualms about killing people who crossed him. He claimed that he would hurt someone just because they made him feel bad about something, anything. Didn't even really matter. He stated, quote, his number one pet peeve was loud-mouthed people because he, they reminded him of his father, end quote. And there are some reports, some from... Uh, even Kuklinski himself, that he also tortured cats and dogs as a child because, because it gave him a sense of power, a sense of control that was stripped from him by being beaten by his mother and his father by neighborhood bullies. So he sought out vulnerable, um, weaker creatures to take out his anger on. And as he got older, he became a feared man because of his temper, and he also was a well-known pool shark. Apparently, he would go into Manhattan during his free time, uh, you know, do his pool sharky duties, and also seemed to use the bustling island of Manhattan as 
pretty much a, a training ground for his later career. He would experiment with different ways to hurt people and different ways to kill people. If anyone rubbed him the wrong way, he'd kill them. Except for women and children. You know, that was his hard and fast rule. No women, no kids. But anyone else was fair game. He would shoot, stab, bludgeon them to death. Sometimes he would dump bodies into the Hudson River. Other times he would just leave the body, you know, as it as it lie, wherever wherever the the murder happened. At the 2019 Crime Con in New Orleans, Kelly Wellman co-chair of the Ventura College Criminal Justice Department, stated about Kuklinski, quote, Like many serial killers, rapists, or murderers, he was a product of a process called violentization, end quote. She went on to explain that significant experiences that can make a person dangerous tend to happen over a long period of time. It doesn't happen all at once. It It's gradual. It's kind of like um, how water runs over sandstone and eventually changes the shape of it. It changes the foundation. She named the four stages of violentization, which are brutalization, where basically children are exposed to violence either by witnessing or experiencing it, or both, which there's there's check number one for him. The second, the second stage is belligerency, where a child makes the decision to use violence to protect himself just like how Kuklinski chose to beat Charlie Lane to death in response to the bullying that he was sick of. She also gave another example from Kuklinski's childhood. He uh, had gone to a religious school and there were nuns in the school and apparently he would be subjected to knuckle beatings with metal-edged rulers by the nuns whenever he'd act out. And one time he was just fed up and told the nun that if she hit him again, he would, quote, break her fucking head, end quote. There you go. I mean, I have my own personal nun ruler story, so this is not entirely uh, fabricated at all. Uh, I definitely did not say that I was going to break her head, though. I was a little too timid for that. Okay, so now on to the third stage. So Kuklinski has already hit both the first and second stage. The third stage is violent performances, which is when a child reconciles within themselves whether or not they'll be able to hurt someone badly enough to stop whatever is causing them to retaliate. Basically, they are deciding that if it's necessary, they can kill the person. And once a child makes amends with that, the next and final stage is virulency, which is when they make a commitment to violence, to not stop until they want to, to kill someone if absolutely necessary, or maybe in Kuklinski's case, not so necessary, but more that he just wanted to do it. And for him, he went through all of these stages by age 10 and at that point is when he uh, self-admittedly started torturing the stray animals in his neighborhood so by age 10 he had already gone through all four stages of this process that would lead him to become one of the most uh, dangerous men out there 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. By the 1950s. Kuklinski had become friends with a mobster named Roy DeMeo. DeMeo worked for the Gambino crime family and is pretty much the man responsible for introducing Kuklinski to a life of contract killing. It started out as just doing assignments for the family, such as robbery or pirating pornographic tapes. Eventually, he, quote, became an enforcer for the Gambino family, making sure debts were paid through violence, end quote. DeMeo would send Kuklinski out on jobs to pretty much beat these men into submission until they came up with the money that uh, they owed. And other associates, including DeMeo, would notice how completely detached Kuklinski would be as he beat these men. And that earned him the respect of DeMeo, who decided to bring him on board as an associate, not just... um, as someone that they would, you know, contact if they needed to do a robbery and just needed extra muscle. And basically, DeMeo decided that having a man on his team who didn't flinch, even at the most savage request, was going to be a pretty unquestionable asset. And eventually, his talent for killing caught the attention of the top members of the Gambino family. So not only did his work get him noticed, but also his size. Kuklinski was six feet, five inches tall, 300 pounds, and intimidating doesn't even really do his size justice. He was just terrifying. A pure, unabashed killing machine just waiting to be set loose. So one night, Kuklinski was out with DeMeo in his car when DeMeo pulled over, parked on a street. They're sitting there and DeMeo points at a man walking his dog down the sidewalk and turns to Kuklinski and told him to go kill him. Kuklinski didn't even hesitate. He got out of the car and began walking towards the man, passing him. And as soon as he passed the man, he turned around and shot him once in the head, killing him, and then calmly walked back to the car and got inside and they drove away. After this, Kuklinski was DeMeo's favorite enforcer, and this pretty much began a career marked by murder, mayhem, and complete callousness. He had no real preference or even a consistent style in how he killed, which is why it was so hard to track him as just the single murderer of so many of these mob hits, and is why he was probably able to go 30 years before he he was caught. Kuklinski would shoot people, he would stab them, he would strangle them, poison them, He used, quote, handguns, crossbows, sawed-off shotguns, blunt objects, knives, and cyanide, end quote. He even confessed to using ice picks, hand grenades, chainsaws, even his bare knuckles, his bare hands. And he also claimed that he used one of these hand grenades to blow up one man. He reportedly stuffed another man into a barrel of quick-drying cement, and despite all of these different methods, which I can't even begin to wrap my head around. There's just, I think he covered the entire gamut of tools and methods to kill people. 
It's just absolutely insane. But cyanide was definitely one of his favorite method methods because it killed his victims quickly and apparently it's hard to detect in a toxicology report, which makes the cause of death tricky to pinpoint. He even had different ways of administering the cyanide. Sometimes he would put it in their food, other times he would use it in an aerosol. So he would walk by his mark, spritz just enough in their face to get them to breathe it in before they would start having a seizure, uh, choking because they wouldn't be able to breathe, and then they would go into cardiac arrest before dying. And this all happened within seconds. Kuklinski had no fear. He would kill anyone, anytime, anywhere. And in the crime family circles, he started to become known as, quote, the devil himself. Kuklinski recalled one occasion where he was getting ready to kill a man who was begging for his life. So he told this man that he would give him 30 minutes to pray to God to come help him. During an interview, Kuklinski said, quote, but God never showed up and he never changed the circumstances. And that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing. I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way, end quote. Feeling a bit repentant? Are we, Richie? I mean, it's uh, it's a little too, too little too late, you know? Such a lunatic. Kuklinski also had a penchant for, quote, freezing victims to obscure their time of death, end quote. And this is how he was given the nickname, the Iceman. He would stick his victims in large industrial freezers to slow the body's decaying process, which would mess with the time of death and make it really difficult for authorities to gauge when exactly the murder happened. Additionally, he later claimed that he used a Mr. Softy ice cream truck as well, but the FBI doesn't put much stock in this. He said that he got the idea for a portable freezer from, for his victims from a hitman nicknamed Mr. Softy, whose real name was Robert Prong. Prong was allegedly an ex-military man with a substantial demolition training and was the one who introduced Kuklinski to cyanide as a way to off his victims. Kuklinski has gone on record saying that Mr. Softy was quote extremely crazy. I'm not sure that he has much room to talk but okay sure Mr. Softy was extremely crazy. In 1984 Robert Prong was found shot to death in his truck and authorities and even other crew members all believe that Kuklinski was the one responsible for his death, despite the fact that he was never charged with the murder. So technically, the murderer, the murderer was never caught. He's still on the loose, but chances are it was Kuklinski. So case closed, basically. He also had other methods of disposal, which included dismemberment, putting bodies in the trunk of a car and having the car crushed in a junkyard, burying them, possibly alive. He claimed to have left bodies sitting on park benches on more than one occasion. He also really seemed to enjoy putting a body in a 55-gallon oil drum and melting it. And then afterwards, he either, quote, left them in the back of junkyard cars to be crushed, that seems to be also a favorite method, throwing them in the Hudson River, or disposing of them in mine shafts, end quote. Before disposing of the bodies, he also made sure to cut off their fingertips and pull out their teeth, just as he had done as a teen to Charlie Lane in order to prevent or slow the identification process. At different points after his capture, 
Kuklinski claimed he killed anywhere from 33 to 200 people, as well as being one of DeMeo's top killers, um, despite that the claim of how many people he killed was rebutted by several of DeMeo's crew members because they said he was never involved in the murders that they committed. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean anything. He could have been tasked to go um, commit other murders while other crew members were taking care of other murders. There's, there's a lot of killing going on. So it's very possible that he did kill that many people and it was separate from the other crew members. Kuklinski also claimed that he was the one who killed Roy DeMeo, but again, evidence showed that DeMeo was most likely killed by crew associates Joseph Testa and Anthony Center, as well as his Gambino family supervisor, Anthony Gaggi. Because of Kuklinski's various methods of murder and disposal, it really made it difficult for the police to suspect that all of these deaths um, in the area that they were looking into were actually the work of one man. At the same time that he was earning this reputation being an extremely intimidating enforcer and, and contract killer, Kuklinski met and married a woman named Barbara Pedrici. By the time he and Barbara were married, he estimated that his uh, death total, I guess, was upwards of 65 people. He and Barbara would end up having three children together, two daughters and a son. There are also reports that Kuklinski was already married with two boys by the time he met Barbara. Years later, she recalled how, quote, he was romantic and persistent. When she eventually expressed doubts about marriage, he pierced her back with a hunting knife and told her that he couldn't live without her, end quote. Furthermore, she said that he had a horrible temper, he had really bad days, and when on those really bad days, he was abusive. He beat her badly enough to, he broke her nose on one occasion, and he was always leaving bruises on her body. So he wasn't completely a loving, non-violent family man, but compared to his job, it's, it's significantly less, but that still doesn't make it right. And Barbara also recalled when he was in a good mood, she saw no reason to leave him. It's just when he wasn't, I mean, he would beat her. He would tell her that she belonged to him and that, quote, if she ever left, he would kill her entire family, end quote. Now, it's really hard for me to imagine a man as cunning and callous as Kuklinski as actually being capable of loving a human being, another human being. If he wasn't capable of this, I hope he was able to fake it enough for his children to believe it because no child deserves to grow up knowing that their parent, mother or father, doesn't actually love them or is incapable of loving them. Or maybe he did love his family, but because of the abuse that he suffered as a child, he had such a skewed view and how to treat those he loved that it, it manifested in abusing his wife. There was never any reports that I saw or read that uh, indicated he also abused his children. Years later, Barbara and her daughters were being interviewed, and one of the daughters, quote, described as Kuklinski's favorite child, told of her father's attempt to get her to understand when she was 14 why, if he killed Barbara during a fit of rage, he would also have to kill her and her brother and sister, 
end quote. Kuklinski may have actually loved his family on some level, but to me, it sounds more like he dominated them through abuse and fear. That's not love. Either way, Kuklinski was able to convince everyone that he was a successful businessman. He was happy. He was well-adjusted. He and his family lived an affluent life in suburban New Jersey, where Kuklinski kept up the charade for decades. He hid behind the mask. His children went to expensive private schools. He served as an usher at mass every Sunday. He organized trips to Disney World. He had get-togethers and backyard barbecues with neighbors and family friends and more of his extended family. No one ever suspected that he was earning his living as a hitman and providing for his family by committing murders at the order of crime bosses. At one point, he was supposedly under the employ of the Genovese, Gambino, and De Cavalcante organizations. I apologize. Those are mouthfuls of words, but he was working for multiple organizations. And no one ever thought it was strange that sometimes he would just have to suddenly get up and leave the house. Didn't matter what time of the day it was, day or night, he just had to get up and leave. He had a job to do. Eventually, Kuklinski began to surface on police's radar around 1980. By this time, he had started his own crime ring, and as experienced as he was, he did make a few mistakes that caused him to pop up. He had several of his known associates turn up dead, so they began to investigate as Kuklinski was suspected in these and several other murders. New Jersey State Police Detective Pat Kane had, quote, started the case six years prior to the arrest, and the investigation involved a joint operation with the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, end quote. The investigation even went so far as to insert an undercover police officer by the name of Dominic Polifrone. Special Agent Polifrone had extensive experience in undercover operations involving mafia cases, and was introduced to Kuklinski through Phil Solomini, a friend of Kuklinski's, also apologizing if I butchered that name. Uh, he was a friend of Kuklinski's who was working with Detective Kane, and so in order to gain Kuklinski's trust over the next year, he was undercover for about a year. Polifrone had to pretend that he wanted to hire Kuklinski, he needed him for a hit, and he also needed to get him on tape as speaking in detail about how he would do it. In these recordings, Kuklinski, quote, was taped discussing cyanide's efficacy as a murder weapon, saying, it's quiet, it's not messy, it's not noisy, you can spray it in someone's face and they go to sleep, end quote. With Kuklinski pretty much instructing Polifrone on exactly how to poison a person with cyanide, it sealed the deal against him once arrested. They had the evidence they needed. Authorities also uh, decided that with that admission, it was more than enough of what they needed to move into the final stages of Operation Iceman. And they basically were just primed and ready for the right moment to strike. After setting up a staged cyanide purchase deal, Kuklinski was apprehended on its own street while in the car with his wife, Barbara, as police blocked off his escape. This was December 17, 1986. It apparently took several officers to put him in handcuffs and restrain him because one, 
he's a big guy with a short temper. But also, number two, he witnessed another officer put his boot on his wife's back as he attempted to restrain her, which enraged Kuklinski so much he started fighting back and resisting, flinging officers off. He was fighting back as hard as he could. He wasn't going down without a fight. Barbara had no idea what was going on. She was kind of in hysterics. And because there was a uh, unregistered gun in the car, I believe, she would later be charged with possession of uh, a firearm because the car was registered as her as hers. So car's hers, anything in the car, you know, technically could be hers. So there you go. At the time of his arrest, Kuklinski would be charged with five murders included in the five were the 1980 murder of George Malibran, who was shot for not paying his debt. And then allegedly he stuffed his body into a 55 gallon drum in Jersey city. The second murder was Louis Masgay, who was Kuklinski's partner that had vanished in July 1981. His body would be found in September 1983 with a single shot to the head, but also showed evidence that the body had been kept frozen since his disappearance until it was dumped and then found. The medical examiner, quote, found ice crystals in the body's tissues and determined that it had been kept frozen, end quote. This was just another clue that Kuklinski was the murderer. And basically with this one, he screwed up. And I'm guessing he didn't let Masgay's body properly thaw before he disposed of it. The Another murder that he was um, suspected of was that of Paul Hoffman. Hoffman disappeared in 1982 after trying to buy prescription drugs from Kuklinski. He, his body was never found and police suspected Kuklinski of his murder and he actually confessed to it despite the charges being dropped later. Kuklinski also killed Dan Deppner and Gary Smith. They were accomplices of his who uh, were part of a car stealing operation that he ran. Kuklinski came to the conclusion that Smith and Deppner were a liability because he saw them as incompetent. So he decided to kill them in order to protect himself. He poisoned Smith's hamburger with cyanide while they ate at a hotel in northern New Jersey. And then, after he died, he stuffed the dead body under the bed. And Smith's body wasn't discovered until four days later, despite the fact that other guests had rented the room. Can you imagine the smell? You have to go to the front desk and be like, oh, excuse me, um, my room smells like there's a dead body in there. And then there actually was. It's crazy. Deppner's body was discovered inside a plastic bag near a tree in May 1983. And after an autopsy, it was discovered that he also died from cyanide poisoning. So police were confident that Kuklinski was their, their guy. And so they enacted the sting operation to catch him. It was set in motion. Not long after Operation Iceman ended, uh, Special Agent Polifrone found out that Kuklinski was planning to kill him next. Finally, in March 1988, after hearing Polifrone's testimony against Kuklinski, quote, a jury found him guilty of five murders and he was sentenced to consecutive life sentences at Trenton State Prison, which made him ineligible for, ineligible for parole until he turned 110, end quote. 
Kuklinski also loved to brag about his crimes, and this continued behind bars. He would go on to grant interviews with writers, psychiatrists, criminologists, and he also allowed himself to be filmed for documentaries. He even later uh, allegedly claimed to author Philip Carlo in a CNN Larry King Live interview that he was responsible for the death of Jimmy Hoffa. He said that, quote, under the direction of Tony Provenzano, a captain in the Genovese crime family, he kidnapped and murdered Hoffa in a restaurant parking lot in Detroit, end quote. He said he had been paid $40,000 for the job and that after he stabbed him with a hunting knife, he shoved his body into a 55-gallon drum and put it inside a car that was crushed in a junkyard. But this claim has never been proven. Initially, he claimed this and then he denied it and then he said, no, this is actually true. So it's really hard to say. The conspiracy theories, the ideas of how Jimmy Hoffa was killed or where his body is there there are so many of them and this is just another one also um again like i said he's being interviewed people are asking questions in one interview he was asked quote do you liken yourself to an assassin end quote to which he responded assassin it sounds so exotic i was just a murderer he really just seemed to like killing people and pretty much in whatever way he felt like at any at any moment and when he was asked why he had ended up becoming one of the most quote diabolical mass murderers in history he cast blame on his father's abuse and admitted the one thing he was sorry for was not killing him quote yeah as we've seen time and again the abuse sustained as a child can have a significant impact on their ability to relate and behave rationally. His abuse does not excuse what he did. I'm sure there are unfortunately lots of people out there who were abused as children and they find a way to fight through it and come out on the other side in a positive way as opposed to how he did. It does help to explain who he became though. You know, a child who is hit learns that it's okay to hit, pretty much. In late 2005, Kuklinski began to show signs of heart, lung, and kidney problems, as well as suffering from a blood vessel uh, inflammation. He told his family that he suspected he was being poisoned, and it turns out at the time, Kuklinski was scheduled to testify against Gambino family underboss Sammy Gravano, who was being tried for murder, and who had actually hired Kuklinski 26 years before to murder a New York City detective in Upper, Upper Saddle River. Apparently, also, while he his health was declining, Kuklinski was floating in and out of consciousness, and he made sure to ask the doctors to uh, resuscitate him if he should flatline. However, the last time that Barbara would visit him in the hospital, she actually signed a DNR, a do not resuscitate form. And a week before Kuklinski died, the hospital even called her because I mean, he was, he was going pretty quickly. They called her to ask if she wanted to reconsider. And she said, no. So she knew Bar Barbara knew that it was just, it was time. He, I think her separation from him, no longer being in the same house, 
with him uh, shed some light on his behavior and actually, you know, how he was treating her was not, <laughs> not that of a loving husband. So as, you know, legally as his significant other, she was able to do that. On March 5th, 2006, at 70 years old, Richard Klinsky died. Initially, quote, his death was labeled suspicious. An autopsy was performed, but they determined that he died due to natural causes, end quote. After his death, the charges against Gravano were dropped due to insufficient evidence. So now that Kuklinski wasn't able to testify, prosecutors didn't have enough evidence to uh, feel like they were going to win this case against Gravano. That, to me, is a bit suspicious. Uh, the man who's supposed to testify against a uh, Gambino family underboss dies and then the charges are dropped. Maybe Kuklinski was correct in assuming that he was being poisoned. He spent decades doing that to others, watching how it affects people, how it acts the symptoms. It's, it's possible. I, I would suspect that maybe he did know that he was being poisoned. Upon hearing about Kuklinski's death, Polifrone stated, quote, The problem was that I was one step ahead of him. Fuck him. He is lucky he had this long life he had in prison. He should have died a long time ago, end quote. If that doesn't sum up how probably most everyone felt about Richard Kuklinski, then I don't know what does. All right, friends, that was Richard Kuklinski. Pretty terrifying, am I right? You know, I, I was in tears when I first read through some of my resources about him, especially when I got to his first murder, uh, Charlie Lane, and how he had the clarity of mind to pull out his teeth and cut off his fingertips. Like, just, again, what 13-year-old knows how to do that? It, just, it blew my mind. I, was, I just, it, <laughs> it, it scared me, because, like, if a 13-year-old knows how to do that, and like it's it's not the first time that a 13 year old has killed someone um you know we i live in new york city and and we just had uh, a pretty brutal murder in one of the parks here and the uh people who did it were were teens were 13 and 14 year olds they they stabbed this girl in one of the parks and left her to die and it just it blows my mind 13 and 14 year olds should not even comprehend what it means to kill someone or even think that that's that's a, a thing to do it's just it's so it's so sad that like this happened charlie lane's murder happened you know decades ago and unfortunately same kind of stuff is happening today um, also, if you haven't had enough of Kuklinski, there are plenty of documentaries, there are interviews out there on YouTube, or, and here's the actor in me, if you want to go the Hollywood route, I'd recommend the movie The Iceman with Michael Shannon as Kuklinski. I'm a huge fan of Shannon's. Honestly, I think he's one of the best actors out there today. Um, I feel like he kind of floats below the radar a little bit because he's, um, He's kind of like uh, Gary Oldman, another favorite of mine. He just sinks into a role. He's like a chameleon. He just blends in and does such 
good work and he is so good in this movie he can switch between being this cold-blooded methodical killer to showing the loving family man side and then just right back just being completely stoic and brutal and you know of course that kind of movie is right up my alley but if you're interested i highly suggest checking it out it's on imdb uh on the imdb channel on amazon prime um okay you can uh as usual find my resources um in the episode notes make sure that you're following mask of sanity on all the social medias and reach out if you have questions or suggestions for cases really anything you know nothing's really off limits at this point i might even drop your name in an episode and answer your question if it's something that kind of fits in with the the episode or uh, questions you have about me or podcasting or whatever uh, i'm a completely well, not completely i'm a pretty open book at this point also if you haven't had a chance and you own an iphone uh please go and leave a review on apple Podcasts. the more five-star ratings and reviews i get the bigger audience i'll be able to reach it's growing every week more and more listeners um i have listeners you know in australia new zealand all over the country it's amazing um i just saw that michigan is now on the map so hey michigan what's up also um a reminder about the patreon links are in the facebook group and in the instagram profile those of you who join at the five and ten dollar levels will get additional bonus minisodes and full-length episodes each month and there are bonus episodes already out so if you're interested go check it out Alrighty, friends thank you so much for listening join me next week as i jump across the pond and i'm going to take you through the case of english serial killer mary ann cotton until next time stay safe friends <laughs>